0: Good morning. Well, as Colin said, we've taken a break from our series in Revelation over the last several weeks, especially right after Advent and even a little bit during Advent to some extent. But we're going to get back into it this morning. and We're going to resume our series this morning by looking at one of the seven letters, again, one of the, the letters to the seven churches that are at the beginning of the book. And the letters remind us that this whole vision, the whole book of Revelation, it wasn't written to fascinate intellectuals, and it wasn't written to excite conspiracy theorists, or even to scare people at Jesus pep rallies. The seven letters remind us that this entire vision, it's for the church, found in every time and in every place, in all of her beauty and also... In all of her messiness. In other words, these letters remind us that this entire vision is for the family of God made up of saints who are also sinners, compromised people who are known and called and loved by an uncompromising God. So, young Christians, young theologians with us this morning, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this question as you listen. Someday we are all going to stand before Jesus and the work of salvation is going to be complete. It's going to be done. And you and I are going to be done with our sin. We're going to be done struggling with sin. We're going to be done struggling with evil desires. They will have been completely removed from us. But that's not how things are now, is it? And you know that. I know that. So here's the question. What... Gifts of our salvation has God given to us now? To enjoy now? And how is it that He reminds us of these gifts, of these things that He's given to us? This is the gospel of Jesus as we find it addressed to spiritually mixed people, people like us. And we find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, Father, we do pray and ask that once again by your Spirit, you would fill us with insight. You, Father, would be calling us away from our idols, and you would also be providing us comfort as we continue to wrestle And struggle with sin in this life. As we look forward to the day that Jesus returns. We live with divided hearts. And so we need a greater understanding of the grace that you've given to us already. And the grace that awaits us. And how to live and walk by your spirit even now, today. We ask for this understanding that you would give it to us through the gospel. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I was about fourteen years old or so. It was a Sunday night, and so I was attending youth group. And towards the end of our meeting there was a video that started to be played from the projector that was aimed against the wall. And I don't remember a lot about the video because what it captured my attention actually was the soundtrack behind the video. And the music held me spellbound. I couldn't get it out of my head for days. And the reason that this song haunted me is because it recalled a lot of very early childhood memories for me. As I thought about it and went home to kind of figure out where I'd heard this song before... And these were pre-internet, pre-Google days, so it took a lot longer in these days to figure those types of things out. It finally dawned on me that I'd heard the song played on my father's record player many times when I was little. And in fact, I'd even heard my dad play it himself on the piano several times. It was a song written by a man named Keith Green, who's a well-known Christian musician from the 1970s and 80s. And that night, when I was 14 years old, it really started a long term love in me for Keith Green's music. So I dusted off some of Dad's old records and found that he had several Keith Green albums. Talked to Mom and Dad, found out they'd actually gone to one of his concerts at one point when he was alive and ministering. And the second of Keith's released albums was entitled No Compromise. On the cover of that record was some kind of potentate, some kind of king or ruler, maybe a Babylonian king, I don't know. And he was being carried by his servants up on his litter as they're carrying him. And all around him, all of his servants and subjects are bowed down to the floor, to the ground, worshiping him, all except one man who's not going to bow down. He wasn't going to bow down, even though... The king is staring like this at that man and pointing down like this. No compromise. And I fell in love with Keith Green's music because it offered me a message that I resonated with. And still do. I was a 14-year-old, church-going, raised in a conservative Christian home, know all the right Bible answers to give to the teachers at church kind of kid but I still loved to hang out with another group of friends where I could be cool and earn their respect by cussing and watching dirty movies and getting into lots of fights, lots of typical 14-year-old stuff, frankly. In other words, I knew what compromise was all about because I'd been living in it, at least from a very basic behavior standpoint, for a long time. But I began to change, actually, a lot after listening to Keith's music. It became something that I listened to daily for the next several years, and it really began a significant change in me. And I became very, very extreme and zealous and radical for an uncompromising Christian life. I turned into a holy terror. No one in my classes, no one at youth group was safe. No one who called themselves Christian could escape my wrath. I called out everyone in whom I detected any kind of compromise in their Christian walk, which as you can imagine turned out to be just about everybody. And this lasted for a couple of years. Until the Lord really began to show me more and more in the middle of high school the depths Of my own sin. And that my sin went so much further. So much deeper than just my choice of friends. Or what it was I watched on a screen. He showed me that my sin included my thoughts. And my desires. He showed me the museum of idols and lusts. That decorated so much of my heart. And he showed me that I was still deeply broken and still deeply compromised. And that's what Jesus is showing the church at Pergamum. That's what he's saying to them in this letter. The church at Pergamum, it's a city that actually demonstrated a lot of passion, a lot of zeal, and a willingness to suffer at the hands of a hostile world. And we've talked about this a lot before when studying these letters. And so we don't want to spend too much time on it. But just by way of reminder, the imperial Roman world that Pergamum is a part of in the first century, it's a culture of lots of religions that are coexisting together with lots of temples and idols, gods, Artemis and Demeter and Isis and Zeus, And in fact, in Pergamum itself was a high temple to Zeus. It was this huge hill that kind of stood behind the city. And there was this throne-shaped temple that was built to Zeus. And so it was a culture like ours, very tolerant of lots of different kinds of polytheism, lots of different kinds of worship. You could worship whoever you wanted. It's fine. But in that kind of a fractured, diverse world... Rome had to do a lot of what our country finds itself needing to do as well. It had to figure out a way to provide unity for its people. Because it didn't have religious unity. So how are we going to provide unity? And so for Rome, that became emperor worship. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to deify the emperor. We're going to require that people worship the emperor as a part of their patriotic duty. And so Pergamum becomes a huge center of emperor worship throughout Asia. It was the first city in Asia, the Roman province of Asia, to build a temple to the first emperor, Augustus. And so while Rome didn't care which gods you liked, it demanded worship of the emperor in order to maintain unity. And so to refuse to worship the emperor at these public festivals where everyone was required to do it out in the open was considered treasonous. And so Pergamum was a center for Greek polytheism, but it's also a center for imperial emperor worship. And so this is why Jesus says twice in this letter, he refers to Pergamum as Satan's throne or Satan's dwelling. And the Christians in this city, they had not compromised, at least at the public level. They'd not compromised at these festivals, despite all the pressures. They remained true to their public confession of Jesus, and they'd even suffered for it. As it was demonstrated through Antipas, a well-known Christian from the town who even died for his faith. And so Jesus commends the church. He comes to them and he commends them for their zeal, for their commitment, their passion. But that's not the end of the picture. That's not all he says to them. Because even a suffering church, even a church that's willing to suffer for its Savior can be a compromising church. In fact, a couple hundred years after this, there was going to be a man by the name of Victorinus who lived in modern-day Slovenia, what's now Slovenia. He was suffering under the worst of all of the Roman persecutions under an emperor by the name of Diocletian. And he and his fellow Christians were suffering greatly. He eventually would die and give his life for the faith. But even he, at that time of great Christian sacrifice and martyrdom, could look around and say, you know what? We're still not done fighting sin in our hearts. We're still a compromised bunch. We're still a sinful group. And Pergamum, for all their faithfulness and publicly confessing Jesus' name, is beginning to secretly compromise on the inside. Some kind of compromise is being brokered internally, and we really don't know the full nature of it. We're not given a lot of details. But it obviously has something to do with some kind of idolatry. Pergamite Christians are going to some form of pagan religious ceremonies. Maybe they're having them secretly in their home. We don't know how they're doing this. They're somehow involved in sexual immorality in these rituals or some other form of sexual immorality. Or maybe Jesus is even using the phrase sexual immorality metaphorically to talk about uh, spiritual adultery against God. We don't really know the full details of the sin that's going on here. But some, in some way, Pergamum is being idolatrous. They're being unfaithful to Christ. And they've got false teachers among them who are telling them that this is what they ought to do, that this is okay. We don't know all the details, but what we do know is that what's being taught as acceptable by the false teachers that Jesus calls the Nicolaitans is unacceptable. Nicolaitans means he who overcomes the people. And the word Nicolaitan is actually very similar to the word Balaam, the false prophet from the book of Numbers. His name means he who consumes the people. And Balaam is the Canaanite prophet who tempts Israel... He knows Israel can't be defeated militarily. And so what he does is he tempts Israel. He gets Balak, one of the kings, to tempt Israel into intermarriage that was against their laws. Because he knew if they could do that, he could get them to start going after their false gods. And the plan totally works in the book of Numbers. And the Nicolaitans are compared by Jesus to Balaam deceiving the pergamite christians into compromising and so just as i had learned as a frustrated teenager and as you have learned no doubt as well the christians were also learning that they were compromised people compromised christians they weren't just living compromised lives they weren't just involved in compromised behavior They were in their very nature, hearts and souls and bodies compromised still. As the church has confessed for many centuries now, we are simultaneously saints and sinners. We are a people who have been forgiven of our sins by God. We've been filled with the presence of the Spirit. We've been empowered to desire and to think and act differently but still loving our pet sins and our favorite idols and our cheap pleasures. And our compromised state, in a lot of ways, actually separates us from our unbelieving world. Did you know that? The fact that we have this internal struggle, this compromise, it's one of the things that separates us from the unbelieving world. There's no compromise in the heart of an unredeemed person. There's no internal struggle between desiring God and his righteousness and his glory and wanting to bring him pleasure on one side and then wanting their own pleasure and their own honor and their own pride and their own vanity and riches and aggrandizement of whatever shape that takes on the other side. There's not that pull and that tug of war, that compromise there. There's no compromise in the devil. I mean, he might present his way, his direction for your life as a compromise. He might appeal to you as a very open-minded and high-minded and loving, tolerant person on your part to appeal to your vanity to get you to accept his way of thinking. But make no mistake, he's not compromising. His desires or plans. Jesus knows this. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, where he faces the devil and defeats him for you and where he defeats him for me. Because the devil comes to him and says, Look, you bow down to me, Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's a great deal. But Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows if he signs on the devil's dotted line, he's going to walk away with nothing and the devil is going to walk away with a title deed to the whole thing. This is why he tells him to shut up. And leave. There's no compromise with the devil. But we feel and experience the inner war. The inner struggle. Just as Paul talks about from Romans chapter 7. That which I know I shouldn't do. Those are the things I do. And all the things that I know God. All the things that I know you want me to do. I don't do those things. And Paul goes on about it for verse after verse in Romans 7 and he concludes the whole matter at the end of 7 by saying, I'm a wretched man. I'm miserable. Oftentimes with my compromise. What do I do? That's a good question. What do we do? How do we respond to our compromised condition? To having divided hearts... And mixed devotions. And we're going to look at two ways that we often respond. And then we're going to look at God's response. Two ways we respond and then God's response. First way that we oftentimes respond to our compromised state is to embrace what I'm going to call over-realized eschatology. And let me explain that real quick so it doesn't just sound like a lot of mumbo-jumbo. Over-realized eschatology. For Christians like you and I who live in a very high-tech, a very kind of prosperous and affluent culture, we're used to having whatever it is we want pretty much right now. We, We are the microwave generation. So if I want my food heated up, I can have it. Two minutes. I don't have to, all of us don't have to have our own separate gardens or plots of land that we work in tirelessly month after month after month hoping that we don't have too much rain or too little rain taking care of all these little plants that we hope are going to grow eventually into food we need. I just jump in my car and I go to the grocery store and I get the cut of meat I want. I don't milk the cow, I just get the milk. I get the vegetables I want. I get whatever I want. I get it now. Entertainment. I don't have to wait for Farmer Brown to host the next hoedown in his barn down the street. That's probably going to be the most exciting thing in my life for six months. I got Netflix. I got a PlayStation. I can go see the Rangers practically whenever I want. I get tickets from Sarah Stone. We live in a culture of instantaneousness. We live in a culture of instantaneousness, and so we bring that approach, that our expectations of redemption and our expectations of spiritual growth. In the same way, we bring those expectations of instantaneousness, of quickness and growth and our own personal growth. It affects the way we look at the world. It affects the way we look at our spirituality. It affects the way we read the Bible. We read the Bible as though it is promising us these gifts, all of these gifts of redemption right now. I'm going to have them right now. And if I'm not having them right now, there's got to be some kind of a problem. In me. It can't be in God, but it has to be in me. Because we find ourselves still fighting with the same old lusts and still returning to the same old patterns and struggles. And so we say, what's wrong? I mean, I'm going to all the right Bible studies. I'm going to the right prayer meetings. I'm praying more. I'm volunteering with more local ministries right now. I mean, I'm pushing these buttons and I'm pulling these levers. I am doing the hokey pokey and turning myself around. What am I supposed to do? What hoops am I supposed to jump through? It's an overrealized eschatology. We expect and demand and think that the blessings of salvation that await for us in the eschaton at the end when Jesus returns, that all of those are to be ours right now. And we expect the blessings of the eschaton to bring us the complete victory right now that we want over a particular sin. We expect some new power and complete deliverance from a particular kind of struggle or suffering or pain or hardship we're going through right now. And when this doesn't happen, we don't receive this, we turn to the second response a lot of times of compromised Christians. And we embrace defeatism. We live as though defeat is all we know. Constantly guilt motivated in all that we do. We say yes to things that we ought to say no to out of guilt. And we say no to things we ought to say yes to out of guilt. And because we can't meet our own high standards and hopes and aspirations for ourselves, we see our walks with God as Hopeless, increasingly so. We become depressed about our own journey towards becoming like Jesus at all. Over-realized eschatology and defeatism. And while we tend towards one side more than the other, oftentimes, the reality is, and we all know it, that we go through different times and stages of actually experiencing both, if we're honest. God's response is different. God's response to his partially redeemed people is, it's neither one of these things. He doesn't let us wallow in the mire of guilt and hopelessness, and he doesn't let us go forward with a false sense of triumphalism and the expectation of victory around every corner either. Instead, he always meets us with his uncompromising grace Look back at the text again, verse verse 16. Verse 16. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one receives it. And so the first thing, the first gracious gift that God gives to his people is the truth. The first gift of grace God gives to his people in this passage is the truth. He says, Pergamum, Pergamum, my dear children, you have suffered. and You have suffered well for my sake. But you're not done yet. Keep persevering. Don't think you've reached perfection. Keep striving for what lies in front of you. Instead, strive to know me and my grace because you're not going to find any with the idols you're being told about. So the first thing that Jesus does is give them the truth, but the second thing that Jesus gives them is the promise of discipline because discipline is a gift. It is a grace. We're being gracious to our children when we discipline them. God is being gracious to us When he disciplines us, he promises to make war against the false teachers in the church with the sword in his mouth, which is ironic because God had threatened Balaam with the exact same thing a sword. And we learn from Numbers and we learn from Joshua that that's actually how Balaam died. He died by the swords of the Israelites. And we don't know what form this discipline would have taken against the false teachers in Pergamum. We don't know. But whatever form it was going to take, whether it was literal death or some sort of metaphorical meaning referring to some other kind of discipline, we don't know. But it would have been for their blessing and their health of the whole church, no doubt. But the greatest gifts, the greatest gifts in the passage are in verse 17. To those who repent and turn from their idols and place their faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. He promises to see them right now. He promises to see them in their current circumstance through the lenses of what they will be someday. He promises to view them, to see them as they are in their current circumstance as Pergamite Christians and their compromised state. He promises to see them through the lenses of what they will be someday. Because Jesus will make them that way. So, in fulfillment of the promises that God makes to his people in Isaiah 62 that David read earlier, God promises the hidden manna, which is actually an invitation to a marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll hear about when we get to Revelation 19, where the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, as the end of that passage in Isaiah 62 said. It's the great marriage supper. But that great marriage supper, that's for later. We're not there yet. None of us have eaten at that supper yet. Not this one. Not the one he's talking about. Not the great supper at the end of all things. But what has he given to us now? What has he given to us now that shows us that he already sees us as his bride now? That he already sees us as made one with himself. Now, he's given us the table. He's given us the bread and the wine at the table. That meal is eaten, an expectation of the marriage supper to come. But also in fulfillment of Isaiah 62, as Colin said a minute ago, God promises them a white stone with a new name, a new name written on it. And this, this, this white stone probably has two meanings. First, in a court of law back then, a panel of judges would have to render a verdict in a legal case. And they would cast a white stone to vote not guilty. So it was a way to say not guilty when a defendant was brought before the court. But in this case it goes beyond that because this stone has a new name written on it. And it's not the name of the Pergamite Christians. It's not my name. It's not your name. The name is almost certainly the same name that Jesus promises in chapter 3, verse 12, in his letter to the Philadelphians. It's Jesus' name. And so it's Jesus' own righteousness that he's giving to his people. It is a a stone saying, not guilty, but it's also a stone with Jesus' name written on it saying, here's my righteousness. That is now yours. But also, it means something else too. A lot of the early Christian fathers knew the white stone to be a symbol of adoption. And in this sense, the new name on the white stone given to us is a pledge and a promise of his adoption. And righteousness and adoption that will one day be declared to be ours in fullness. The adoption journey done. The journey into righteousness done as we stand before him. But what is it? What is it that Jesus has given us now? To let us know that he already sees us as his dear children. That we are already adopted children of his father that we already have Christ's righteousness. He gives us baptism. Baptism, the sign of cleansing, the sign of washing, and the sign of being placed into the very family of God. And so as partially redeemed children who are simultaneously saints and sinners, we are compromised. Our hearts are daily a battleground between the desires of the Spirit and the desires of sin. But God's grace, it doesn't compromise. It doesn't fail to forgive, but it also doesn't fail to actually renew us either. It doesn't fail to actually make change. Sometimes when we think about the Christian life, we think about our relationship to God and our relationship to sin, our relationship uh, of spiritual growth. We can oftentimes picture our lives as though essentially... We're just a big house filled with, that's just one room, a one-room house. And in the center of that room is, is this chandelier. And that chandelier is either burning brightly, and the room is swept clean, and we're doing all the right things, we're participating in all the right activities, and that, that light is burning brightly, and our lives look as they ought to. Or that light is off, and things look terrible, And we are crushed under the weight of our guilt. And we are crushed under the weight of our sin. And it is is black and white. It is one or the other. We are either in darkness or we are completely in the light. That's not the way it is. That's not the way spiritual growth and sanctification and becoming like Jesus looks for you and for me. The reality is... We are, our lives might be a mansion, but it's a mansion with many, 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 many rooms. And there's a light on in every single one of those rooms, and it's on a dimmer switch. You have lots of rooms in your life. Lots of places where the light is burning brightly, or maybe the light is barely on at all. And the reality is, God's work in your life is so sovereign... God's doing so many things in you that you don't even always know. And you're sitting in the middle of one of the dark rooms and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling beaten down and you're feeling like, how is it I'm ever going to grow? And God has been working in a completely different wing of the house that you didn't even know was there. Turning lights on. Cleansing you. Washing you. Making you more like him. You're depressed at the rooms you're looking at right now. Or you feel really proud and self-righteous about some of the good rooms you're looking at right now. There's a lot of rooms. And there's a lot of sin in those rooms, but there's a lot of God's grace and sanctification and a lot of righteousness in those rooms too that God is working into you. That's the way it really is. That's the way it looks. And so, as we come... To God, yes, we have to admit we're compromised Christians. But our God is not going to compromise His grace. Because He's not going to compromise the work of His Son. He's going to see it to completion in you. He's going to finish the good work that He has started. When When someday every room in your house is going to be burning brightly, and when you are going to be able to serve Him, with undivided, uncompromising hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we do long for that day. We do say at the end of every service, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we do long to worship you. An undivided state, no compromise. But we do pray and ask that in this time and in this place, where will you have us now, you would comfort our hearts, reminding us that you are aware that you know that we are but dust. That you know our weakness. That you know our frailty. That you know the good things you're doing in us, even, even things we can't see a lot of times. And so I pray, Father, that you would increase our vision. And help us to see more and more what Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing in us now by the work of grace, by the power of his grace, by the power of the Spirit. Some of us need closer relationships with other Christians who can help us see those things that you're doing in us because we can't see ourselves very well. Our mirrors don't work well. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us do that. Help us to be more connected with the body of Christ. That we can receive encouragement from other members to see the good things that you're doing in us. To see areas that need your touch and cleansing and work. Father, do these things in us because we are a compromised people. And yet we know that we are also your children. We know we have also and given and declared righteous with Jesus' righteousness, even as we wait. And so may we be encouraged with these things daily. Do these things in us by the grace that is in the Lord Jesus, by the grace that is in the Spirit who fills us. Amen.